Gary Ben Nerd Chuck, host of Wine Library TV, aka WLTV, the number one wine show on the internet. And this is BBQ Center. Howard Stern, Jim Rome, Dan Patrick, and Greg Rampey. The Mountain Rushmore of talk show entertainment. Now, let's get back to the Barbecue Central Show. And we're doing bonus content. It is Friday as we are recording this. That is March 20th. And we're in a weird time. So, thought we'd bring on one of my favorite guys to follow socially, who also is steeped in the restaurant business as he's going around and trying things out, uh, whether it's a new place or one of his old standbys. And that, of course, is Nick Solaris. You can find him at nicksolaris.com on the Twitter, Nick underscore Solaris, and Instagram at Nick Solaris. Nick, thanks for joining me here. And I guess, first things first, how's your social distancing going? My social distancing has been effective in terms of me distancing myself from other people um, and also from old joy in life, frankly. This is, yeah, as you said, dark times. Will you venture out? I only go out for essentials, like if I if I need to get some food and stuff. If I, you know, that like I've only only gone out since Friday the thirteenth. So it's been a week now. Um, I've only gone out maybe once a day, once every other day, and just to top up on things as I'm sort of reacclimating my life to one of cooking instead of going out to eat. I've eaten out every meal for the last, you know, 15 or odd years. So it's very, <laughs> I'm, I'm, my, my kitchen is going to a cooking footing as opposed to one that basically stored liquor and wine bottles on the, uh, on the counter. Are you really eating out all the time? I do this fasting thing, which I think we talked about last time, um, where I don't eat two days a week. And part of the success of that is not having food in my house. You know, any meal that I have informs my work, whether I write about it or cover it or, you know, no matter what, it's part of what I do. So, yeah, I eat out every meal or at least I used to. Are you 100 percent freelance? I am now, but I but really I'm not freelance because I have my own production company now and I'm just I do my own stuff and, and I do work for clients now as opposed to being a journalist, which is what I was technically until about two years ago. So over the past week, week and a half maybe, what has been the biggest shock to you, uh, not in the restaurant portion because we'll really dig into that here in a minute, but just everyday life, what's been the biggest shock or change that you've had to become acclimated to? Well, I guess I had started here. I have a lot, I have rel- my brother lives in Taiwan. I have relatives in Europe and Britain. And, you know, I heard about this virus um about a month ago and I was supposed to fly to Seoul and then Tokyo (laughs) this week as it goes. And that obviously we canceled that trip like, you know, about a month ago because we had heard what was going on over there. I then booked a trip to the UK. I was meant to leave last night. Obviously that didn't happen either because you know, you can see you. Can, I've seen the spread of this thing globally, so I know I kind of know what's coming. And if you really, if you look at what's happening in Italy um, and in France and Spain, I sort of feel that that's our future because that's what's happened in California already. And you've mentioned that you know, I think in Ohio they've they've already shut down all the. Re- I think that shutting down restaurants, shutting down social places, movie theaters, sporting events, you know, places of worship. That's coming, and then we are eventually going to have to get shut in, I think. I mean, I think that's an inevitability. Mm-hmm. What I'm seeing here is that there is, there was that initial panic 
where everyone ran out and bought toilet paper and, and dried pasta. Now that we're sort of in this weird period where it's like limbic, right? We're sort of just stuck in this time where nothing officially has come, but there's murmurings and there's there's this feeling on the street, there's a tension on the street. And yet nothing's really dynamically changed other than the you know, obviously the restaurants closing and all that. But you still you can still go out, you know, you can still buy things. But the restaurants being closed, obviously we'll get into that in more detail. That that is obviously for, you know, not just personally, but I think in terms of the, the fabric of social interaction, like so much of of that in New York takes place in those institutions. Nick, from a high level, and I don't have any idea where we'll begin to see the other side of the situation, could be months from now, obviously. Where do you think that this particular item will rank as far as things people talk about five years from now or 10 years from now? Will it make it into whatever school textbooks might look like 20 years from now? How do you see this fitting into the grand scheme of history? My feeling is if it plays out as badly as I fear it's going to play out, and I'm not trying to be pessimistic about this, but I've seen, you know, I've obviously read a lot of the stuff that you see coming out of Europe and, and you see the um, there's a lot of reports out there and they're, they're all pretty uh, grim. I would say it's probably the most profound event of my lifetime. I'm 51, hoping <laughs> hoping to make it to 52 in September. The first thing you have to consider, of course, is the human toll. It's going to be twofold. One, it is going to be the amount of people that are going to die from this disease. There's a lot of things, people thinking it's only for, for old people, but that's actually proving to not necessarily be the case. And a lot of the cases are of younger people. Yep. Irrespective of that, it's going to kill a lot of people. It's going to kill a lot of our fellow Americans. There is also the economic toll that is going to cost lives, right? Whether it's people not being able to have the hospital treatment they need because the hospitals are flooded with the coronavirus people, or the fact that people are going to lose their jobs, their incomes, they're not going to be able to afford medical insurance. They're not going to be able to afford the medicines they need to keep them alive. So there is that. And then knocking on even further, of course, is a calamitous economic decline. The drop in, just the drop in wealth, the drop in jobs. I think that the restaurant industry, and I'm not, you know, obviously that's the industry that I'm involved in. And I don't think that I'm being parochial, but I think that because the service economy is such a big part of, of American life, and because so many people who go through it, it's so, you know, so many people have worked in a restaurant or a bar when they were younger. It's this whole pillar of our economy that is as big as big oil, big pharma, big tobacco, big alcohol, right? But because it's independently run to the large part or it's small, even in terms of like big restaurant groups, like, you know, in New York City, we're talking about like the Union Square Hospitality and the major food group and the Momofuku Empire. They're still infinitesimally small compared to any of the big multinationals, right? And you have this whole pillar of the economy that I would say is even more vital than than the big industries like the airlines and the cruise ships, right? The ones that are specifically called out on podiums, right? But this whole pillar of our society, it's not just about the jobs that are employed. It's also that it's the social infrastructure it provides, it's the intersection of our society. It largely takes place in restaurants and bars and nightclubs and concert halls. It's not just about resurrecting the economy so that the Dow Jones is spiking and everyone's stock value goes up. You know, it's really about putting back into American life 
the most crucial, vital aspect of it, which is us coming together as people in social situations. What this has done right now, it's absolutely decimated the restaurant industry. Well, that was going to be my lead-in question next was as somebody who is eating out, eating in, both from a New York City perspective, as someone who travels domestically and also abroad for food. You know, how fucked is the restaurant industry right now? I mean, in my estimation, it's really fucked. Without intervention from the federal, state, and local governments, it's gone. The industry is gone as we know it. A big problem in New York especially is that every restaurant, a good restaurant deal is really a good real estate deal. A good restaurant, a successful restaurant Mm. needs a really good real estate deal or you own the property that that you reside in. Even the biggest groups, the ones that I mentioned before, are operating you know, on a virtually week to week, they can't sus- they can't support a, a payrolls of a, you know of eight hundred, a thousand, two thousand people for more than a week. It's unsustainable. I think that without serious intervention, it's going to completely decimate that industry. We're going to lose a ton of the places that I particularly gravitate towards, and that your show is kind of all about is like the old school barbecue joints. Hamburger stands, hot dog stands, Mm. fried chicken places, pizzerias. Look, we're going to survive this. America will survive this, right? It's not an existential threat to America as a nation, to us as people. But it is an existential threat to a very large swath of the cultural and historic places that we love to eat in. And that's, you know, that's the biggest danger. You know, they are on such tenuous ground anyway. I mean, you know, places that are selling slices of pizza and and sliders and hot dogs, like that food is never going to be trendy again. (laughs) We're going to go on to eat impossible burgers and wraps of avocado, this and that, right? But like those places will never come back as, as these sort of cultural forces. But they remain now as a real link to our past and, and also, frankly, a way that I want to eat. Obviously, with everything I'm saying is with a caveat that like the human cost is the thing we need to consider. So that's what I fear for is that when those experiences will never come back. It's going to change the way we live. It's going to change the way we interact. Nobody's going to shake hands. People are going to look at shaking hands like smoking cigarettes. It's going to change the way we congregate in large spaces. I mean, I don't know that the standing in line at, at Snow's or Franklin, it's going to be a five-mile affair because we're going to, you know, we're going to have to stand six feet apart. It's going to change radically the way we are. What they're talking about is several months that we're going to be under this duress. You know, let's hope there's an industry that, that comes out at the other end. It's very dark days for the restaurant industry. There's no right answer for them. You can't close down and lay off all these people without the government telling you to do it without losing some leverage in what you can do, right? So people will put in an impossible position, right? Do you risk your staff and your customer's health? Or do you keep paying people so that they can pay for the medicines and their rent and everything that they need? The government needs to step in and make that decision for people. It's not fair to put that onus on the individual restaurateurs also not effective public policy to just have it randomized like that. We have to be in this together. This virus has the potential to cause great harm to us. And sadly, the the effective way seems to be from staying away from each other, which is anathema to everything that, you know, your show and my livelihood and the things that we love are about. I mean, it's about camaraderie and being social and being around people and sharing these incredible experiences. 
because I found out you can eat okay at home. You know, I can make a <laughs> hamburger. It's like that's so what? I'm eating a nice hamburger, but it's so decontextualized. It satisfies me on a very pro, you know, on the primal level. I'm eating juicy, fatty, salty stuff, but that's. Oh, it's so lacking, you know, it, it's so lacking in what makes the hamburger the hamburger. My dearly departed friend, Josh Ozersky, said that the hamburger is a public object. It, it's really only itself in the public domain, out in public, at a restaurant, at a greasy spoon, at a diner, at a roadside stand. You know, at home, it doesn't. It doesn't have the same veritas. It doesn't have the same profundity. Even getting a restaurant delivery from the, the restaurant isn't the same because, you know, hospitality is about more than just the food. Isn't there something to be said, though, Nick, where if you are making a Pat Lafrida steak or you're making your own hamburger or however you're making it, that you can revel in some sort of personal success? You're not relying on going out to eat. You are making it at home. You're enjoying it at home regardless of what's happening. I think there is a lot of self-worth in doing it yourself and achieving an end product that you're satisfied with. Well, I don't, unfortunately, derive <laughs> pleasure from that. <laughs> it's not that I don't love food for the cooking. That's only a part of the greater, the totality of the experience, right? The ritual of dining. The fact that other people do it, that you know, and especially in the restaurants that I love, the old school places have been there forever, right? It's this ritual that has just been generational. You go in there and it just oozes history. It's such a stark thought to 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 realize that on March sixteenth, twenty twenty, like the pause button was hit on that. Will life ever play the way it did before? Can you imagine when you when you're at Katz's Deli on a Saturday afternoon mm. where the 500 people sitting down and another like 100 in line all like you know shoulder to shoulder and i don't know if that that experience will ever come back in you know in it's all in all its glory do you think that americans are quick to forget though once once this is done and it's over with do you think that something they can just quickly sweep under the rug and say okay well we're we'll purell more we'll wash our hands more but we do want to get back to exactly how it was and, and we'll do whatever it takes to do that. I would hope so, although maybe I don't hope so because that might not actually be feasible or wise. Um, we'll see because China has just – look, in China where it first started, they have now sort of beaten it down. They're using very coercive and evasive measures yep. in China. I mean it, that's the uh, – the advantage of having a, uh, a totalitarian state, right, is that you can basically do what you want with the population. Now, they have beat it back and it's on decline and cases are going down and so forth. They're just worried that there's going to be a resurgence in a month. And I guess that will be a test case. Look, it's not as if we're going into this completely blind. We've seen what's happened in South Korea and Taiwan where it was quite effectively dealt with. We've seen the response. If you do what Iran did, which is do nothing, it, it just it's absolutely a scourge. I think we can kind of see what the response will be, is that we are going to probably be locked down for a few months. What happens in China will kind of determine our outcome in a few months when we come out of this initial, which will hopefully be the first and only wave. But look, it, you know, it's seasonal, these things. So it could come back again at the same time next year, which technically is, is closer to October, right? I don't know any of this. I'm, I'm not a scientist. I'm a f food writer. But this is everything that I'm understanding from reading, right? I don't want people to listen to this and think that I'm like <laughs> – Dr. Nick Solaris. I'm just saying what, you know, from my understanding of it. So I think that I, I do feel that it probably will inexorably change the way we are. 
and it's probably we're probably going to have to change the way we are. One of the other but, things that I wanted to talk about is, you know, when we talk about restaurants, like that's the face, but there are other underlying or, or underpinnings that happen to make a restaurant successful, which is the various suppliers. Uh, these are also businesses that are going to be affected. Do you think that they're potentially more at risk than the restaurant itself as far as not being able to sustain for any type of time? No, because the fact is that a, a restaurant, if half the restaurants go out, a supplier is still going to have half of his clients, mm. right? But individual restaurants will be gone. A supplier is in a better position. And what you see, what I'm seeing in New York is a lot of suppliers switching from um, restaurant to consumer sales, which is a smart move. For the people that had this infrastructure in place, it's they're in a much better position. Pat Lafrida has been selling to the public for years at yep. this point. So I just placed an order online and, you know, got the delivery. It was all very seamless. So I, I love farmer's markets. I love organic produce that was driven in on a truck, a turnip truck from <laughs> upstate New York, right? Nick, did but, you just say you love produce? I don't believe I, that. Being facetious, <laughs> but I, I love the idea of a fresh farmer's market, meat and everything else, right? But the reality is that this is the one time during a time like this when big food and the supply lines and the, the commoditization of food is actually of benefit because we can still we're going to be able to feed the no one's going hungry in America. Are we going to get truffles in truffle season? No, we're not. We're not getting any more wagyu for months, right? Nothing's coming in from abroad. There's no more Scottish langoustines, but we're still going to have the staples and we're not going to go hungry. My favorite diner down the street, there's people that basically old age pensioners, people that are in their 60s and 70s that eat every meal at Joe Juniors, you know. They're delivering to these guys because that's their that's the way those people eat. You know, they don't have a choice. They don't cook at home. They're you know they're infirm, whatever it is. At the same time, that's that's also a danger. The possibility of the transmission in that situation is obviously something you need to worry about. We're not in a real quarantine. The airports are still open. I can't tell people not to go and order delivery or even go pick up. But you know, personally, I've just been cooking at home and eating at home because I I. I sort of felt that that was going to happen anyway, so I prepared myself for it. I don't think people will ever realize, but what everyone's seeing of the restaurant industry now is kind of the way that a lot of restaurateurs live every week. Because every week, it's a struggle to keep those places open. I'm talking about successful restaurants have these troubles because it's it's a system that really has never gone beyond the sort of Byzantine structures and especially in New York, where we're dealing with laws and rent issues and, you know, all kinds of, of regulations that go back like 150 years. So it's a lot of restaurants have always lived this tenuously. Um, but obviously, when it happens to the entire industry all at once, it's just existential. Do you have any type of speculatory ideas on what New York City and, and perhaps what the country is going to look like from a restaurant standpoint if we're three or, or four months removed? I think that if the federal authorities, if FEMA dollars, if the local, state, federal authorities all do the right thing by the industry that is a major pillar of our society, we've already seen uh, victims of this. Mm -hmm. A couple of very big, very Superb restaurants, those Gotham uh, Bar and Grill and Little Tong Noodle Shop. 
restaurant business had been down in New York, starting with Chinatown probably six weeks ago, right? There had been this real noticeable dip where a, a bunch of the big dim sum houses like Jin Fong closed, not permanently, they shut down temporarily because there was just not enough business. Mm. Then we started seeing all restaurants. I was at my favorite local di- restaurants, Momofuku Sambar, a few blocks from my house. It's really, I love that place. It's just a, one of the standards of, of my dining uh, diet. And it was really slow. And they were like, yeah, business is down. I was, you know, it was just, everything was slow. At that point, people were already on tender hooks. You know, places were already struggling because of this. And then when the, when the ban came down, March 16th, it's, it's the light, you know, it's the night the candles died, like, I don't know that, you know, fine dining will ever be the same. I think we'll, you know, pizzerias and burger joints, we'll always have those, right? Th- those will always be attainable. And obviously, they're, they're sort of mass market and they're broadly appealing. But those Michelin-starred fine dining, tasty menu, old school places that were already, frankly, in decline, I don't know if that'll ever come back in, in New York. They're offering curbside. You're offering to go. A lot of people are out there saying, hey, if you love a place, if it's one of your favorites, this is the best way to support them. Do you think that the American public is trusting enough? And I'm not saying that the restaurants aren't doing their part in order to make sure that everything's sanitary. And as you had just uh, referenced a couple minutes ago, you know, maybe there is this weird transmission availability still at play. Do you think that it's better to talk about, but when you're actually pushed to do it, there's going to be more reservation than the want and will to do it? It's the system is already porous. If people are delivering, it's porous. Personally, I'm not doing that. And it's not that I don't want to support these restaurants. I feel that in this immediate point, we're at a point that the industry is secondary to the city itself. I live in a building with a lot of elderly people. I don't want to get my neighbors sick. I'm actually an elderly person. I want to get myself sick, you know? So I've really minimized my interactions as much as possible. I think going forward, I think what they're doing in China is that food is delivered, but it's done to restaurant kitchen standards. And I think that's the, it's going to have to be that way. There's going to have to be protocols. They have this whole thing about um, sort of hands-free delivery where they just leave it for you and then you go pick it up. I think that that's a system that will also have to be in place. This could be the future of restaurant dining for the foreseeable future. So if you don't want to cook it yourself, you may have to do it this way. Because I don't, I can't see restaurants being open in any time in the next few months. Nick, outside of the topic that we're talking about here, uh, you're somebody that makes a living traveling around. I would assume that on a typical, you know, if you look back at last year, you had a bunch of different things on the agenda, travel trips and so forth. Mm-hmm. Are you pretty much canceled all the way around at this point? Yeah, we had this Masters of Meat, which was going to be this amazing mm-hmm. conference in uh, in uh, Europe. That's canceled. I would imagine the Big Grill in Dublin is, yeah, I mean, there's nothing mm-hmm. on, the, on the agenda. I mean, we've lost a ton of work, obviously, through all of this. But that's secondary to just getting through the next couple of months and it's very different to 9-11 i mean i i, I was here in 9-11 yep. it was yep. it was a, just a absolutely like terrifying and completely but there was something about that like once it happened you kind of knew who the enemy well eventually you knew who the enemy was i mean it, it, it is the proverbial moving target 9-11 planes go into buildings they go to the pentagon something happened 
physically. Now there's protocol response to go in. You're going to clean up. You're going to rebuild. So there there wasn't this moving target that the virus represents. Yeah, and I think that also in, in this sort of popular imagination, you can put a face to that. Fear is so much a part of what drives the virus in a sense or what makes it successful, right? Because what this fear does, it makes your immune system suppress, right? It has all these negative impacts on your biology, making the virus easier to take a hold of you. So getting back to the to the the challenge that we face, it's it's an abstract enemy in a sense that we can't actually physically see it. But unless you actually know somebody who's gotten it or even worse, if you know someone who's passed away from it, it's still a little abstract, yep. right? Yep. We're still seeing those numbers tick up. And look, the numbers are massive because we're not testing anyone, so we don't know what it is. So whatever number it is, it's going to be bigger than we've ever been presented with. It's this weird suspension of reality because nothing's open, but we have freedom of movement, yet it just feels like something's coming down. No matter how much Cuomo tells you, that's the governor of New York, for yep. those who don't know, who, who I must say has been doing a very good job of communicating and being clear about things. And I, you know, I feel being honest about things. At the same time, even though he's telling us you're not going to get locked in, all of this is going to – you just see it happening in other places and you just kind of get the feeling that since this is probably – at, at this point, I think we have the, the greatest rate of infection in, this, in the country. I think we should be locked down. That would stop it spreading, which would mean that people, the, the people that are telling me not to panic wouldn't have to be locked down themselves. Although I think at this point it's already – it's out in the wild, so to speak. It is one of those things that we're going to have to come together on. For the industry, we're going to have to come together to pick up the pieces of what's left. I fear it's going to be seismic in its impact. At the same time, let's hope that what emerges is an industry that can then sustain an impact of this in the future, right? So that does mean having insurance for, for workers, you know, having some kind of some kind of system where the structures are in place that you don't have to lay your entire workforce off if you're out of business, if you can't open for a week. You know, I don't know how many other businesses and industries in America survive along those short, tenuous threads. All we can do right now is just try to stay away from each other, stay positive. When the restaurants come back, frequent them. Go go in whatever form we're allowed to eat in restaurants, you know, support those restaurants. The most important thing you can do for the restaurants is actually pressure your congressman, your local politicians, the local mayor, Senate, all the way up, right? There needs to be rent abatement, right? Sales taxes due yep. today in New York State. So these restaurants that have been closed for, you know, all week already had probably 50% of what they were earning in depressed sales as a due to the due to this whole coronavirus have to now choose between paying their employees, like basically the last week's pay that they're going to pay them for the foreseeable future or maybe ever, or run afoul of the state tax system. Landlords want their rent, you know? And sure, and landlords also owe money, right? And landlords have issues. Sure. But at the same time, you know, there needs to be some kind of some kind of pause button where everything can just just be held. You know, they do it for the stock market all the time. It's happened like every time they open the stock market within 20 minutes, they hit, they hit that pause. Well, we kind of need a pause too in the restaurant industry. This is where social media is actually, I think, going to be of value. You know, it's the one way we're going to be able to stay to, to communicate with people. 
um, I would still encourage everyone to pick up the phone and just call, you know, because you online is great, but that phone call, that hu- hearing that human voice, it has more resonance than you can probably imagine. Um, so anyway, thank you very much for having me and I hope everyone's safe out there and healthy. All right. Uh, follow Nick on Twitter, Nick underscore Solaris and on Instagram, like I do at Nick Solaris. Nick, appreciate the time. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. 